0: Hello and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.17, the Society of God Worshippers. Feng Yunshan preached. He traveled from Hamlet to Hamlet baptizing new believers. On the Sabbath, he gathered with the faithful to sing hymns, recite prayers, and confess sins. They called themselves the Bai Shangdi Hui, the Society of God Worshippers. Feng Yunshan was one of Hong Xiquan's first converts and among his most ardent followers. Most of his fellow believers in Shangdi and his sons Jesus and Hong Quan, were poor and struggling. Life in the Thistle Mountain region of Guangxi province during the mid-1840s was tough, but the god-worshippers knew they were stronger together in their faith than apart. Most were tenant farmers, day laborers, and miners, though they counted at least one "quote unquote" rice lord and several wealthy families among their ranks. These men and women declared their faith in a single god, recognized that God's son Jesus had given his life to bring them salvation, and that Feng Yunshan, a failed Confucian scholar from Guangdong Province, had brought this great news to them. For thirty-two months after Hong Xiquan returned to his home in Guangdong Province, Feng led the growth and development of the society. He was Hong Shiquan's personal friend, the most zealous of his first converts, and a charismatic leader in his own right. Other early converts from Hong's first trip to Guangxi, such as the wealthy Jung clan, also helped build the society's foundations. But Feng was the most important leader in the growing movement at the Sol Mountain. By the time Hong returned to Guangxi in August 1847, there were several thousand god-worshippers, and their numbers grew every day. The plurality of God worshippers, perhaps even a majority, were Hakka like Hong and Feng, non-Hakka who joined often knew God worshippers from their work. Some God worshippers worried about their fate after death, while others were just lonely or hungry and wanted company and a warm meal. Still others joined because it was said that Shangdi and his son Hong Shiquan could heal their illnesses and afflictions. Fung and the god-worshippers weren't afraid to make material appeals. These weren't original, necessarily, but seemed to have been drawn from the same cultural well as the Heaven and Earth Society. For example, here's part of a secret society recruitment song from the same time. The people at the top owe us their money. The people in the middle are content to snooze. The people at the bottom should go with us, for that's far better than renting an ox to plow some worn-out land. Now here's the God-worshipper take. Those with millions owe us their money. Those who are half poor, half rich, can till their fields. Those with ambitions but no cash should go with us. Broke or hungry, heaven will keep you well. The Heavenly Father's commandments were the most important tenets of God-worshipper faith, and were the hill upon which the community was built. There is only one God, Shangdi. Do not follow the demons, and the false gods. Obey the commandments. The commandments were so central to the god-worshippers that they would eventually become known as the Ten Commandment religion by outsiders. The god-worshippers gathered for services in congregations, something that didn't happen at nearby temples. Weekly worship was required for all in the society, and consequences for non-practice were severe. Services began with the sounding of a gong. Men and women worshipped together, sitting in separate rows. They sung hymns, and then listened to sermons and teachings on topics like the evils of idolatry or the salvation brought by Jesus. God the Father was the main subject of their worship, though Jesus was also venerated. On the other hand, no hymns were sung for Hong Shi Quan, who is respected as the wisest of the teachers and the closest to God, but not as divine himself. Sins were confessed in front of the entire gathering, Literate worshippers wrote them out on paper and burned the paper so that God could read about their sins from the rising smoke. Two burning lamps were placed up front on a table. Offerings such as cups of tea, rice, meats, and other delicacies were placed beside them. Compared to the kind of offerings made at other local temples, however, these were quite spare. Through the service, a literate official recorded all of the proceedings on a piece of yellow paper yellow being the color traditionally reserved for imperial business. Its adoption by the god-worshippers was among the earliest signs of the group's political rebellion. To finish the service, the official read back what had happened, and those attending signed their names, as though approving the minutes to a corporate board meeting. The paper was then burned, of course, so that it could rise to heaven for Shangdi to review. The god-worshippers called this paper Zhou, That was the same word for the letters and the memos that Qing bureaucrats wrote to their superiors or to the emperor himself to report news from their post. Worship practices extended beyond communal Sabbath worship. God-worshippers prayed before meals, for sick relatives, for a blessed marriage, at birthdays, and when entering battle. Here's an example of a prayer taught to children. Heavenly Father, the Great Shangdi, bless us little ones. Provide us day by day, clothes to wear and food to eat. Keep us from calamity and difficulty. Grant that our souls may ascend to heaven. At funerals, sacrifices were made to help speed the deceased's journey to join Shangdi in heaven. Here is an example of a funeral prayer. Now I reverently prepare animals, delicacies, tea, and rice, respectfully offering them to the Heavenly Father Shangdi. I implore the Heavenly Father to display grace and allow the soul of this unworthy servant to ascend to heaven and enjoy the great blessings of the Heavenly Father Shangdi. When American missionaries visited the Taiping at their capital in Nanjing several years later, they recorded that daily offerings of rice, greens, roasted pork, and tea were made to each Shangdi, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They noted how regular offerings were made, And how serious this matter was taken. The practice and the specific choice of offerings were borrowed from ancestor worship practices popular in Guangdong and Guangxi provinces. But the god-worshippers were not mindlessly copying existing practices, but adapted them to their new beliefs. For example, the practice of burning fake paper money was not continued, perhaps because the symbol of imperial power was considered idolatrous. Now if you're thinking, all these sacrifices and offerings don't seem like any Christian practice that I know. Consider that when Hong Quan read the Bible, he found numerous examples of sacrifices and offerings being made to Shangdi. For example, Exodus 29 includes instructions from God himself given to Moses on Mount Sinai for several sacrifices and offerings, including daily offerings of lamb, though the God-worshippers' offerings of vegetables made it a more well-rounded meal. Even if this practice was adopted from their own cultural context, the God-worshippers found plenty of support in the Bible for its legitimacy. In most sects of Christianity, it's believed that Jesus brought an end to the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament, so these could be safely ignored without violating God's will. But that wasn't how Hong and the God-worshippers saw it. There was no old law or new law, there was just one law, God's law. What sense did it make for the Almighty to mess up and make revisions to his own law? Jesus had not come to replace or conclude the old law, but to spread it and bring the possibility of redemption to God's children. Offerings and sacrifice to the Heavenly Father were important, though they should not be as ostentatious as those made to the demon spirits of neighboring temples. The God-worshippers innovated upon existing practices of ancestor worship in other ways, In practices popular throughout China, children made offerings and sacrifices to the spirits of their dead ancestors. This practice was forbidden by the god-worshippers as idolatrous. Instead, prayer and sacrifices were offered directly to Shangdi on behalf of their deceased parents and ancestors, not to their parents and ancestors themselves. The god-worshippers did not practice the Eucharist. In this ritual, a piece of bread and cup of wine Are turned into the flesh and blood of Jesus, and then consumed by the worshippers. The rite follows a passage in the Bible known as the Last Supper, where Jesus serves bread and wine to his disciples the night before his crucifixion and death. How literal this transformation is depends on what sect of Christianity you're considering. Catholics, for example, believe in what's called transubstantiation, which says that the wine and the bread become the literal blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, Anabaptists think that the ritual is merely an act of remembrance, and the bread and wine remain just that. I don't know if Hong and Feng were made aware of the Eucharist ritual from reading Liang Fa's good words, like they were of baptism. Unlike the ritual consumption of human flesh and blood, ritual bathing and washing were already commonly practiced in China. As we'll see next episode, Hong certainly became aware of the Eucharist in 1847, when he visited American missionaries in Guangzhou, but neither the god worshippers nor the later Taiping adopted the practice. The Qing Empire was home to a number of temples, monasteries, roadside shrines, ancestor halls, and other places that we call religious. When discussing quote unquote religion in China, it's important to note that the Chinese languages of the 19th century did not have an equivalent word or concept. The idea of religion as we understand it today grew out of the post-Reformation Christian world of 16th and 17th centuries, and how European merchants, colonialists, intellectuals, and conquerors made sense of the world and defined themselves within it. Medieval Christians would not have recognized the modern meaning of the word either, and there is no equivalent word in the Bible. The behaviors and thoughts that get grouped together under the umbrella of religion were of particular importance to those 16th and 17th century Europeans who coined the term. My general understanding is that the word religion was created to serve two purposes. First, it described the fractured landscape of post-Reformation Christian Europe. Protestants were loath to grant the superstitious Catholics any legitimacy as Christians, but they could still agree that they were practicing a religion. Second, European conquerors and traders encountered new people across the globe, new cultures, and saw in these unfamiliar practices and beliefs something analogous to their Christian practices and were thus dubbed religion. Until recent centuries, self-identification in religious terms, like thinking of yourself as Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, was not really a thing outside of those three peoples of the book. But the isms that Europeans encountered and labeled through their trade and colonial projects such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Animism, etc., didn't share the peculiar alignment of traits found in the cultures and the peoples who gave the word religion its modern meaning. In China, for example, ideas about the proper familiar relations between a father and a son, younger brother and older brother, and husband and wife, etc., were fundamental to anything that can coherently be called Confucianism. While familial relationships and hierarchies obviously existed in post-Reformation Europe, they are not thought of as Christian or foundational to Christian faiths. Patriarchy often existed alongside belief in Jesus Christ, but you could have one without the other. Many people didn't self-identify with isms ascribed by the Europeans. For example, Hinduism is an idea coined in its modern meaning by 19th century British colonial administrators as a collective term for the many different traditions that they encountered in the territory that would soon be incorporated into the British Raj. Only later was it appropriated by some Indians themselves to create a common identity to stand out from Muslims and Christians. This situation creates a conceptual minefield when it comes to history. It's all too easy to impose our idea of what the word religion should or shouldn't describe onto the past, and by doing so, we fail to understand the people and the events we're trying to comprehend. To get around this, I'm going to try to do two things. One, use the ideas and terms of self-identification by the people of the time. And two, try to break things down into component pieces that may or may not come to mind when I say the word religion in its classic definition. I don't think this is a perfect approach, and it does come with pitfalls, but... I think it's much better than what you typically find in popular history. Here are some examples of what I mean by component pieces. Concern about the afterlife. Moral behavior or ethics. Special communities. Ritual. Ritual exchange or beseeching of the gods. Revelation. Politics, of which war is a subcategory. Spirits, gods, and demons. Beliefs about phenomena like storms, earthquakes, and disease. Magic, medicine, sacred places and objects, social class and hierarchy, purity and pollution, how the world was created, how it operates, and how to influence it, and combinations of the above and many more things. In modern parlance, some of these concepts are central to religion. Others might be considered domains of science, medicine, sociology, or superstition. But when I use the term religion, or describe one of the religious isms. Those groupings don't often hold up, and I don't want them to. Protestantism, for example, has a lot to say about ethics in the afterlife, but less about magic or medicine. Other isms emphasize or completely ignore these domains or others. So when I call something a religion, or use one of the somewhat anachronistic isms, don't get bogged down in the details. Just take these descriptions as broad gestures and generalities, not precise terms. It's a place to get us started, but not an endpoint. In case I haven't made it clear with all that deconstruction and reconstruction, I do think the idea of religion can still be valuable when trying to understand human societies. For example, Hong kuan himself clearly recognized the Christianity he encountered in Good Words as something competing in the same domain as the practices philosophies, and faiths he grew up with. It wasn't just Europeans who recognized that beliefs, practices, and institutions of their own societies were also present in others on the other side of the world. The Qing Empire recognized the three teachings, Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, as orthodox and acceptable. By the time Hong Shiquan performed his first baptisms, these traditions had coexisted in uncountable flavors for nearly 20 centuries, with the relative popularities of each rising and falling, depending on what time, place, and groups one considers. All three teachings originate in the 5th century BC. Confucianism and Taoism were formed during the turmoil of China's warring states period. Buddhism began in the broad plains and foothills south of the Himalayan mountains, in what is now India, and reached China in the 1st century CE. The history of each tradition is impossibly deep and could support a dozen podcasts. Each is also tremendously diverse and varies across time and place and person. They also influenced each other in more ways than we can know. For our purposes here today, I'm going to provide a super brief overview of each tradition with an eye to what will have the greatest impact on our story because these traditions formed the cultural landscape in which the Taiping grew. The three teachings are not considered to be mutually exclusive. You don't have to declare that you are a Taoist and then never practice ancestral rites or give alms to a Buddhist monk. In the Abrahamic traditions, it doesn't make any sense to say that you're a Christian who believes Muhammad is God's last prophet. You pick a team and you stick with it. Within each tradition, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, there is a ton of variety and fluidity. But at any given time, you can only really profess to one of the traditions, at risk of being ostracized or worse if you try otherwise. Confucianism is probably the most influential of the three teachings when considering Chinese society as a whole. The tradition traces its origins to Confucius, a court advisor and teacher in the 5th century BCE. Writings attributed to Confucius were then compiled by his students and their students and then their students over several hundred years leading up to the Han Dynasty when they took final shape. The earliest extant copy that we have of Confucius's writings comes from the year 50 BCE, centuries after he lived. Early commentaries on the work attributed to Confucius became key to its interpretation. Some, like those of Mencius, attained classic status in future generations. Over the years, different traditions and practices came to be identified as part of Confucian teachings, but in general, Confucianism was a philosophy of harmonious submission, as Julia Lavelle describes it. Confucianism described and enforced what proper relationships between people should look like. Ideas about how wives should be subservient to their husbands, sons to their fathers, younger brothers to older brothers, are all understood as Confucian. Confucianism touched other parts of society and government as well. We've already seen, for example, how Confucius played such an important role as the sage teacher in Qing schools preparing students for the grueling imperial exams. Imperial ideology and court ritual practices are also described as Confucian. Beginning with Qin Shi Huang in the 3rd century BCE, the emperor claimed to be divinely appointed, not unlike the Christian monarchs of Europe. The Chinese emperor was said to have carried the mandate of heaven as the quote, son of heaven, which meant that heaven wanted him to be in charge, and it was always a him looking over his people. But if a dynasty became weak and the emperor was overthrown, then this was merely an expression of heaven's judgment. This was very unlike European ideology of divine right, which didn't leave any room to question the king or emperor's legitimacy, no matter how bad a job he was doing. Imperial power was expressed and reinforced through a huge number of complex rituals, which we're not going to get into here today. But others were required by appointed officials and bureaucrats throughout the empire. By its very nature, this was elitist, but we've already seen how imperial declarations affected ritual practice in broader society, such as with the requirement to display identical tablets at every school With calligraphy copied from that of the Kangxi Emperor himself. The concept of the three teachings itself was an elite idea. It gave the Emperor and his court a way to put all the gods, spirits, rituals, monks, temples, shrines, and practices within the empire's borders into distinct groups, not unlike how the European colonialists grouped everything together. Groupings and labeling made these activities and their followers, legible to imperial policy, whether that was neutrality, condemnation, or appropriation. Emperors often co-opted popular local gods. These local deities were granted titles in the same way a successful bureaucrat or rich landowner might be granted a title. Local magistrates sponsored rituals and built new temples for the recognized deities. None of the traditions in China had a central organization or hierarchy of priests. Imperial patronage and prohibitions were as close as China got to something like the Catholic Church. The founder of Taoism was a man named Lao Tzu. Like those of Confucius, Lao writings were compiled into a book called the Tao Te Ching, which took several centuries to take its final form. And again, like with Confucianism, there were many popular commentaries on the Tao Te Ching, as well as other texts in the tradition that continued to be written in the following centuries. Since the Tao Te Ching has taken on its own life in the English-speaking world, I'm not even going to try to untangle the philosophy and beliefs that may or may not be behind it. Different philosophical interpretations didn't impact those who practiced Taoist rituals or hired a Taoist monk to make them a protective amulet. For our purposes, Taoism is a catch-all term for a diverse tradition of communities and practices that encompassed things like trying to learn how to create elixirs of immortality, mystical experience, martial arts, creating magical charms to ward off malicious spirits, exorcisms, ritual offerings, divination, meditation, and more. For example, Chin Shi Huang famously pursued a magical elixir of immortality. He employed the alchemist Shufu to sail into the Pacific in search of the mythical Mount Penglai, where it was thought the elixir or the ingredients to make it could be found. In the 12th century, the Song Emperor Huizhong changed the appellation of God to Great Jade Emperor, God of the Golden Palace of the Luminous Heaven. It borrowed from Taoist conceptions of the divinity. For Hong Xiquan, this was just another example of the emperors following the demons and not worshipping Shangdi also founded in the 5th century BCE also founded in the 5th century BCE buddhism began spreading to china in the 1st century CE and really took off during the tang dynasty of the 7th to 10th centuries one thing that set buddhism apart from the other traditions in china was its foreignness but this was no barrier to its success buddhism emphasized different things than the other teachings it placed a strong emphasis on life after death and its connection to the person's behavior during life through karmic rebirth. Buddhism also had a tradition of communal monastic life, something absent from the other teachings. According to most Buddhists, the founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, a.k.a. the Buddha, attained final nirvana and escaped the cycle of life and death. He has passed out of both the metaphysical and spiritual worlds and is unable to receive prayers or intercede in the world on behalf of worshippers. So attention was instead given to an array of bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are enlightened beings that delay entering nirvana in order to serve others and lead all beings to enlightenment. They were venerated, given offerings, and sent prayers. It was similar to the role played by Catholic saints in medieval Europe, though in Buddhism it was the Buddha's body parts that were made into relics, not bodhisattvas. Different Bodhisattvas came in and out of favor throughout the centuries, but figures like Guanyin and Maitreya were extremely popular in China and beyond. In addition to the three teachings, Guangxi and the area around Thistle Mountain had its own indigenous beliefs, gods, and ideas about the world that were as distinct as the people who lived there. Communities throughout China maintained local and regional shrines, gods, and holidays. These practices are sometimes grouped in the non-category, near-pejorative phrase, Chinese folk religion, a term I am not very fond of. With each of the three teachings, you typically find a shared understanding of how the world and the gods work, how one should interact with them, and a shared language of symbols, tropes, and archetypes. That wasn't necessarily the case with these other local gods. They varied quite a bit from place to place. The local Chinese temples and the gods that lived in them did not have centrally organized clergy or priesthood supporting them. In Buddhist and Taoist traditions, professional practitioners such as monks and priests lived in temples of their own. Others practiced out of homes. Many local gods were part bureaucrat and part parent. We saw both of these on display when Hong Xiuquan visited his heavenly family in 1837. His heavenly father was dressed in the style of a Qing bureaucrat, and presided over a court with many functionaries. He was also a commanding patriarch, demanding that Hong go back to earth and save his people from the demons, and bossing everyone else around. At Thistle Mountain, where the god-worshippers lived and practiced, the most important community of temples were the Three Generations, three members of the Fung family who had achieved Taoist perfection centuries ago. There were around six temples for these three, in the area around Thistle Mountain alone. Local notables and political leaders often controlled local temples, which were funded by taxes and voluntary contributions. In response to the growth of bandit gangs and the unrest of the mid-1840s, a Tuanlian militia was formed at the Three Generations Temple in Da Xuanzhu, the largest market town near Thistle Mountain. Not all temples in Guangxi housed gods who had displayed particular moral worth in life or achieved spiritual perfection. A temple in Guiping County, the Tsiungsa Temple, quote, "...commemorated a vagrant who created a walkway over a river by throwing cow dung that magically became rocks." End quote. Temples and the gods housed within could also be quite vindictive. The best example of this at Thistle Mountain was King Dan, a very popular deity with at least five temples in the area. The story goes that A geomancer told King Gan that acquiring a particular family burial site would bring fortune to him and his relatives, but that it needed to be sanctified soon with a quote unquote bloody ritual for the best effect. So King Gan purchased the plot and promptly murdered his mother and had her buried there. His career quickly took off and he became a powerful magistrate for the rest of his life. In death, King Gan continued to exert corrupt sway over the people of the region, like a typical Qing bureaucrat. One story says that long after King Gan's death and the establishment of his temple, he possessed a boy. The boy addressed a magistrate passing in a sedan chair and demanded that he go into the temple, worship, and donate a very expensive set of robes to the temple. The magistrate obeyed because, I guess, corruption between magistrates continued on in the afterlife. The temple Hong and the god-worshippers probably despised the most was the Liu Wu Temple, also called the Shrine of the Six Caverns, located near Sigu. That was the town where Hong had lived during his very first trip to Guangxi in 1844. The Liu Wu Temple was a popular location for singing flirtatious songs and sexually charged duets. These duets originated as a practice of the Zhuang people, who spoke a Thai family language, but had over the years adopted the language and many cultural practices of their Yue neighbors. The tradition is that a failed exam student and a woman stayed up for seven days and seven nights on Liu Wu Mountain, singing to each other until they died. Ants deposited soil over their bodies until they were buried, and their immortal spirits now inhabited the temple that was built upon the very site. Hong was having none of this. He denounced the temple with a poem. I take up my pen to compose a poem condemning Liu Wu. Those two evil demons deserve to be punished and deserve to be exterminated. All the people in the mountains have become animals. Everywhere the men sing and the women respond in song. Because of their evil ways, it is said that they achieved immortality. Nor is it strange that unchaste women become family wives. One day, in a burst of thunder, they will be struck down by lightning what recourse will they have when heaven decides to no longer tolerate them? As the god-worshippers gained strength, Feng Yunshan began leading direct attacks against the local gods, including Liu Wu. According to Theodore Hamburg, confidant of Hong Rengan, the people who supported the temple were not happy about this attack, and publicly professed their hope would strike Hong Shiquan dead. Instead, were told that white ants, maybe termites, swarmed the temple, and destroyed the buildings and its wooden idols. Feng also led god-worshippers in attacks against an earth god temple and a Wenchang temple dedicated to the god of literature. We don't get many details about these individual attacks, but from what we do know, the god-worshippers probably defaced or smashed the gods' idols while denouncing them for their demon worship. Hong Shiquan returned to Thistle Mountain at the end of August. 1847. I don't know if he was in correspondence with Fung during his extended absence, but he must have been impressed with the god worshippers and their growing strength. They now numbered around 2,000. Hong's arrival drove more and more intense attacks on the local temples. The earth god continued to be a popular target, as its shrines were numerous and scattered around many small communities, so they are pretty easy to attack. Attacks extended to the temples of Pangu, the thunder god Lianggong, and the Nine Demons Temple, among others. These attacks seem to have increased the prestige and perceived power of Shangdi and attracted more followers to the god-worshippers. During the attack on the Nine Demons Temple, Hong took some time to scroll a poem across the temple wall. It was the first time, of which we know, that Hong declared himself to be the heavenly king, and his intentions to rule a heavenly kingdom. The extremely popular Three Generations temples were left alone for now. The god worshippers' desire to destroy the demons was not blinded to the realities of their actual power and its limits. In late 1847, Hong led an attack against the King Gong Temple, built upon the site he buried his murdered mother. When Hong Shi arrived at King Gong's temple, according to the Taiping account, he approached the wooden image of the god and struck it with a bamboo stick, saying, I write a poem and issue a proclamation. I rebuke the demon Khan. You deserve annihilation and execution, and must no more be spared. You killed your mother, thus transgressing the law of the state. You deceived God, and violated the heavenly commandments. You deluded and enslaved men and women, and deserve to be struck by lightning. You harmed the people of the world, and deserve to be burnt by fire. Make haste and hide and return to hell. With your filthy body, how can you wear the dragon robe? Hong then ordered his followers to deface the idol, saying, Dig out the eyes of the demon, cut off its beard, trample its hat, tear its embroidered dragon gown to shreds, turn its body upside down and break off its arms. Homburg tells us that a bounty of a hundred silver dollars was put on Hong and the god-worshippers after this attack. He also tells us that King Gan himself possessed a boy, which seems to be his MO, to instruct his followers to just put his idol back together and ignore the god-worshippers. Despite King Gan's instruction, many people who prayed and made offerings at the temples which the god-worshippers attacked would not be so forgiving. Perhaps the strongest complaint by the god-worshippers against these false gods was that they prevented the people from becoming aware of the Heavenly Father and His greatness, or recognize that all good things that happen in life were His doing, not the work of the demons. It was Hong's mission to remedy this, and it drove an uncompromising iconoclasm for close to two decades. It was not the case that every god beyond Shangdi was condemned. In a conversation recorded the year after the attack on King Gan, it's clear that the god-worshippers believed that the bodhisattva Guan Yin was a daughter of Shangdi, thus Hong's younger sister. Guanyin was extremely popular, so appropriation instead of condemnation was probably a prudent idea. Her integration into the heavenly family also clearly put her in a subservient role to Hong, let alone Jesus and Shangdi, in the conception of the heavenly family as she was both younger and female. The god-worshipper's iconoclasm and attacks on temples intensified upon Hong Shiquan's arrival at Thistle Mountain, probably because by now we're 100% certain he had a copy of Karl Gutzlaff's translation of the Bible. How Hong acquired this will be the topic of our next episode. The Bible gave him orders of magnitude more material than Liang Fa's pamphlets had provided. What he found reading it, was a tradition of demon slayers. In the book of Revelations, he read about a red dragon in heaven searching for a human fetus to devour. But the child was born and brought to Shangdi, defended by Michael and the angels. Hong stated that he remembered being this fetus. Hong himself was in the Bible, and the Revelations described how Shangdi commanded him to be born into the world with the mission to exterminate the great serpent. Next episode, We'll hop back to Guangdong province to see what Hong Shiquan was up to before rejoining Feng at Thistle Mountain. Word of Hong's Christian community had filtered down to the missionaries operating outside of the now-reoccupied foreign settlement on the outskirts of Guangzhou. Members of the recently formed Chinese Union went and visited Hong at his home in Guanlubu and invited him to visit the American and European missionaries. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please, leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have feedback for the show, comments, or questions, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at tinyinsectpod. Thanks for listening.